Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkan Kazarian. On today's show, we're going to break down encryption. Don't worry, my Russian ways are not going to hack into anyone's phone or computer. I'm just going to have a very uh, distinguished guest, an expert in this area, talk about what encryption is, how it works, what it does, does it mean to an everyday American. Encryption continues to be a policy issue that pops up here and there and will probably not go away for a very, very long time. Issues with law enforcement constantly applying pressure on companies to create backdoors to aid them in criminal investigations is obviously very complicated and there are both sides to consider. Most recently, U.S. government has urged Facebook to compromise the encryption features in its Messenger app, which has been used by MS-13 gang members. But what would be the consequences of such measures to our liberties, our rights, our privacy, and the technological safety? How does exactly encryption work is what we're going to start with. And to help us with that, we have Navrub Mitter, CEO of Armor Text. Joining the show, he's going to help us understand what encryption is and how it works. And after that, we maybe can chat about some policy issues. Navrub? Thank you for joining the show. Thank you for having us, Ash. So um, what is your background? How did you end up, you know, creating this company and what inspired you? What was the push or the idea behind it? It's a great question. You know, so Ash, I grew up in the technology space. And while I had generally always been a developer, even from my teenage years onward, working out in California and multiple startup companies, when I left college, I got recruited into IBM and wound up at you know, a part of their security practice. And when I was in their security practice, they had recently just acquired this technology in the identity and access management space. Ended up doing a lot of work in and around security, and as a result, built my entire career based on that. I eventually made my way over to Accenture with stop-offs at another consulting company in between. And while I was at Accenture, I ended up helping build a few different practices globally. One of those was in Sweden. While I was in Sweden, I got exposed to the telecom industry. And I ended up doing a lot of work in telecom at the intersection of mobility and security, including being asked to help pontificate about what that future intersection of mobility technology, security, would end up being for both an OEM, a telecom, which is the customer of the OEM, as well as then the telecoms customer, the original equipment manufacturer. So in this case, it was a company that produces networking and telecommunications equipment that's used by carriers around the globe. And so we were being asked to think about, you know, for them as a business, what would the future intersection of mobility and security mean? What would it mean for their customers, which were the telecoms, the carriers globally? And what would that would ultimately mean for the carriers' customers who were consumers and individuals? Well, all this was taking place at the same time as the iPhone was being launched as a platform. And so as a result, very early in the game, I was able to sit down and spend a lot of time at the behest of a customer to think about that future intersection of mobility and security. And it's around that time period that we realized that the prevailing security models of the day would be all that would be available early on because the devices were underpowered. We wouldn't have the ability to go for more complex encryption schemes and things like that. But that at some point in the near future, as messaging and collaboration became 
better utilized or more uh, more frequently utilized in enterprises, that they would start to realize that a lot of their communications were quite vulnerable and that we were going to have to go build out new technologies for that. And so the genesis in the company is, you know, years prior to me ever leaving to start the company, it's in that thought process around, well, what will enterprises need if mobile messaging and collaboration take off? Sounds good. So that was the inspiration. And then you came back to US and decided to create a company, just be out on your own? Kind of. Uh, I came back to the US and ended up going out to the Midwest to help a client out there with some security matters that were completely unrelated to telecom, but instead were related to retail and some of their security needs. I'd already worked with banking. I'd worked with folks in the energy sector. I'd worked in financial services, had worked with companies of all different backgrounds, including all enough um, government at multiple levels, both at federal as well as state and local. And so was spending time out there, ended up spending a lot of time back and forth in Argentina because I helped build another practice in Argentina to help address you know, security operations and day-to-day needs there uh, related to a client that was in the Midwest. We wanted someone closer in time zone. So broad career, focused on that for a while, realized I wanted to actually go build a technology company around a product again, which is where my my roots are, right? I was originally on the product side of the house. I wanted to go back to the product side of the house. So I left the consulting world to start this company because of uh, you know, a an interesting trip I took to Costa Rica where I ran into a friend, a woman who's now a friend. She was a lawyer at Wilson Sonsini. We sat up all night long just discussing startups and debating technology and some of the ideas I had and some of the approaches I wanted to take that were different from what others were taking or doing at that time in the market. So when was this? When did you start your company? Yeah, so that trip was in 2010. Uh, company doesn't really start until late 2011, beginning of 2012. We start on the consumer side of the house. We decided that we wanted to help protect consumer privacy and security first. We had assumed that, that would help take us into the enterprise you know, within a couple of years, though, it became clear that while we were getting the traction we wanted on the consumer side of the house, ultimately we were going to be better served by pivoting purely to an enterprise approach. So in 2014, mid to late 2014, we pivoted to the enterprise and we started building out a whole new approach to end to end encrypted unified communications for the enterprise, right? So in a enterprise setting, unlike a consumer setting, you have to solve for things like governance, retention, review, controls, and a number of other capability sets that you don't necessarily need on the consumer side of the house. And so we started building a whole new product geared towards helping enterprise companies better protect their communications. And we had to really start drawing upon that experience I'd had in these various regulated industries and critical infrastructure to understand what their needs would be. And we started building out around their use cases. You said that government was one of your clients. And so the encryption part was extremely important for you, right? So so to clarify, we don't sell actively into government today. What we do have is a number of customers and clients who are adjacent to government at various levels. So our customers include folks in critical infrastructure, that's the energy sector, the utilities. We have multiple ISACs now as customers. We also have companies like defense manufacturers and or government advisory services, folks who have access to a lot of very sensitive information who need to be able to converse about this information internally for themselves. And they spend a lot of time 
being really concerned about how they secure that information. From a defense manufacturing perspective, you can think about the use case where they might have IP related to a weapon system or something like an optical system that is directly impacting our soldiers on the battlefield, right? And their ability to maintain the privacy of that information or ensure that, you know, others aren't able to hack in, listen in, and then understand how to reverse engineer the technology. Without giving us any trade secrets, how does encryption how do you work with encryption? What exactly do you do? So do you create code or, I don't know, create the software that your clients use or do you just use encryption communicating with them? Great question. So we are a product company instead of a services company, right? The distinction being that a services company might do consulting work with you. They might communicate whatever channel you want. We produce a product that our customers buy. They use for their own internal communications and or their partners, vendors, and others that they federate with. So our product is similar to a number of other collaboration technologies or chat and messaging solutions you might see in an enterprise, right? You've heard of things like Box and Dropbox that are used for file share. You've seen Slack, Microsoft Teams, or Skype for Business on the communication side of the house, the messaging side of the house. We kind of sit at that combined level between the two, providing both a messaging and a file share capability, but specifically for those clients who need end-to-end encryption. We, as the provider, have built out a capability set that allows you to have per user, per device, unique encryption for every message or file that's shared on the platform. We never have the ability to decrypt any of our customers' communications. As they flow through our systems, the end-to-end encryption is such that it's encrypted specifically for the sender and their own unique devices, as well as all the recipients in a conversation and their unique devices but we never have access to any of the private keys that would live on any of those end user devices. And as a result, we can't decrypt anything. So you would be the perfect person to ask, what exactly is encryption and how does it work? So a lot of people think it's, you know, that like little key and the lock that you see as an image and that's what they imagine it is. So do you, can you explain to our listeners what is encryption? Well, that's a that's a really broad topic. So when we think about encryption, we, in the classic sense, tend to talk about what we see in compliance frameworks, right? You have encryption for data at rest, you have encryption for data in transit, and lately you've been starting to see more and more use of the term of end-to-end encryption. And before we go into that, what is a data at rest and what is data in transit? Yes, absolutely. So data at rest is when the data resides on the server, potentially inside of a database or some sort of other file. It's sitting on the file system. It's not being transported anywhere else at the moment. So let's say I use Evernote, right? And I have my little notes organized into categories. Is that data at rest? Because it is on Evernote servers uh, because they sync all of it. Would that be considered data at rest or is it Am I missing a link here? No, you've got it. So while the data sits on their servers and while the data sits on your phone, those are both places where the data is at rest. When it's syncing, it's actively in transit, right? So that's the data in transit component. When it's at rest, there are a handful of different ways that we tend to address encryption. One of them is either full disk encryption, i.e. what the Apple folks have rolled out for the iPhone, right? Where if you set up your passcode and everything else, you can take advantage of full disk encryption. The entire hard drive itself is encrypted. When you have some of these other services, instead of encrypting the entire infrastructure of the device, what they're really saying is we have a database where we have encrypted that entire database. And so if you were to simply open up that database and that file and didn't have access to the key necessary to decrypt any of it, you would just see junk. You wouldn't see anything that was 
readable in plain text to the person just grabbing that database file. So that's data at rest. What about data in transit and its encryption? So data in transit is typically encrypted using SSL or TLS, transport layer security, right? And so when you have this TLS encryption occurring between your device... That's just a tool, I'm guessing, TLS, SSL, that encrypts the data? Absolutely. So actually, one of the best ways to think about it is to use... AmericanAirlines.com, right, or AA.com as an example. When you go to AA.com, you'll see that little green lock icon show up saying that, yes, your connection between your browser and American Airlines is now secured. You can transmit information. What they're saying is, is over the internet, as this information, your name, your frequent flyer number, your credit card, any of the other information you're sending over is protected in such a way that none of those intermediary parties that are transporting this information will be able to see it or read it in plain text. They will just see that junk. Once it arrives at AA.com, right, it hits their network infrastructure or some other part of their infrastructure, they are able to obviously see that information because they need to be able to process it in order to issue your ticket. So the data in transit encryption really just addresses that pipe over the internet. Once the information is received by that your you know either your provider or whoever is providing the service that you're trying to connect into, they're able to then see that information. All right, makes sense. Makes sense. And now let's go to end-to-end encryption, the very widely used term that very few people understand. Yeah. So. Building on that example that we just had with AA.com, right? So you go to this website, you're filling the information you need for a ticket. They're able to see your information. They're able to process that they're able to move forward. Classically, most messaging and file share systems worked the same way. You were protected by, you know, TLS or transport layer security over the internet. You had an encrypted pipe from your device, either your browser or your application to their network infrastructure. And over the internet, as you were traversing the internet, that pipe was secured and no one else was able to peer in. Once those messages or those files that you're communicating were received by the servers of this provider, whatever service you're going through, they would then go ahead and re-encrypt that information over a new pipe for whoever the recipient was uh, that you were trying to send things to, whoever you were conversing with. In order to say that they were appropriately protecting your information, they would then go ahead and encrypt that information inside of the database, right? They would put it into the database and bulk encrypt the whole database all at once. And so they would be able to store your information for you so you could recall it later on. In that scenario then, at any given time, that service provider, whoever is providing your messaging application in that classic sense, would be able to open your communications again. Right? They were only encrypted between your device and your provider's infrastructure. So if they can read it, they could then data mine it. If they can read it, they can go ahead and monetize it potentially. If they can read it, they could be subpoenaed directly for it. If they can so read it, they can also be hacked for it. So if I message my friend, let's say on one of social media platforms and it's not end-to-end encrypted, and I say I'm craving donuts and I see a Dunkin' Donuts ad show up on my feed, probably <laughs> it had something to do with data mining of that message. That's exactly it. So what's happening is because they're able to read it, they're able to figure out how to leverage that information to monetize it. We tend to think of that as being the primary use case, but one of the other challenges that's come up is is more and more, if these technology companies are able to read that information, they're also being expected to turn it over on subpoena. And while for the consumer side of the house, there are a lot of arguments for or against that side, on the enterprise side, they generally said, look, that information or that subpoena should have to come to us as an enterprise. That shouldn't necessarily be in the hands 
or third party that's outside of our organization. If they had kept their own on-premise messaging capabilities, that would have very much been the case, right? Obviously, they're running their own infrastructure, but if they start to use cloud-based services, suddenly you now have a third party that can be subpoenaed directly for that information, or that could be hacked for that information. And that opens up a whole can of worms around bulk hacks and other things. Now, end-to-end encryption, in contrast, says that I, as a sender, am pre-encrypting this information in such a way that only the intended recipient or recipients in this conversation will ever be able to decrypt it. Possibly other people on either end of that conversation in an enterprise perspective for governance or review reasons. But as it traverses the internet and even goes through the provider who's providing this cloud-based service that I'm communicating over, Neither the people on the internet nor this cloud-based service provider will be able to decrypt these communications because they don't have the keys necessary to decrypt any of it. So WhatsApp would be a good example? WhatsApp is a great example of that, right? So unlike previous generations of messengers that simply protected you over the internet with TLS and then maybe encrypted that information at rest in the database, WhatsApp has said, hey, we pre-encrypt the information at the time of send on your device for your intended recipients. And that way, as it traverses the internet and traverses through WhatsApp servers, they're unable to decrypt it. So that means that WhatsApp, the app on my phone, would create a certain key and the lock, right? And then send the message to the recipient and only the recipient would have, they would have the key to open this message. Is that making sense? Yeah, and and actually one of the easier ways to explain this might be by way of analogy, right? So if we think about most locks that we are used to dealing with in the physical world, either your door lock or a padlock that you might put on your locker at the gym, typically you have the same key that turns both left and right. And so if you wanted to give someone else the ability to send you something securely, you could send them a copy of that key in advance. They could lock the padlock for you and you would have on the other side of the house the same key you could turn you could put it in and open the thing up that's a shared key model in a public private key model what ends up happening is is that and this is what we generally call asymmetric encryption what you have is you have one key that can turn to the right that will go ahead and lock the lock you have another key that will when inserted turn to the left and will unlock the lock so to speak, mm-hmm. right? And so if you think about that two key scenario, one that can help lock something and protect it and the other that can unlock it, neither can, key can be used in the reverse, right? It's used one way, but it won't work the other direction. And so I could actually send you a copy of this key that will lock something for me. It's my public key. You could have a copy of this lock. You can put something in this box for me close that lock, lock it with this public key. You could actually send a copy of that public key back through every single courier along the way that is holding that box. You can send that key with it. It can be taped to the side. They can keep trying to insert that lock, that key into that lock repeatedly. It'll never turn to the left and unlock no matter what they try. I, on the other side of the house, when I receive that box that you sent me this, you know, something in, I have a private key that when I go in, will turn to the left and will allow me to unlock that box. And so you can be assured that only I have access to the data. Um, just last week, the news broke that Facebook is right now in a sealed proceeding in a California court fighting a subpoena where the government law enforcement wants to uh, wiretap 
conversations that are happening on Facebook Messenger. And these conversations are happening with, between allegedly very bad people, members of an MS-13 gang, the notorious crime lords um, that are committing awful, awful crimes. But what they're using is Facebook Messenger for calls. And Facebook says that we can't give you the keys because we don't have the keys. This is encrypted and to end. Do you want to um, unwrap this for us? Yeah, no, there's there's a lot there, right? So we all know that WhatsApp provides end-to-end encrypted communications. And is owned by Facebook currently. And is owned by Facebook, very much. Um, when it comes to Facebook Messenger, people might be a little confused because they'd previously assumed that Facebook Messenger wasn't end-to-end encrypted. And that is actually generally true. When you're communicating over Facebook Messenger in general, your communications are not encrypted end-to-end. They do, however, have an opt-in version of encryption that is called secret conversations. And when you are starting a conversation at the very beginning, when you type in that first name or right before you type in the first name, you have the ability to go to the, on an Android device, at least up the upper right-hand corner, hit the lock button. And when you do, it enters into secret conversation mode. And on Apple device, it just says secret. Right. It just says secret. When you enter into that mode, you have the ability to converse one-on-one from one particular device to another particular device using an encrypted channel. It then, at that moment, sets up a encrypted channel specifically from your device to one other person's device, and those messages are not accessible to Facebook at all. And so while the majority of users haven't even realized this is available, there are obviously some that now understand that they could communicate over this channel. Well, you have a handful of users then who are using that end-to-end encrypted messaging side of the house. What is new information potentially is Facebook saying that they can't even access the calls because they aren't routing the calls through their own media server or something that they maintain at which you could then tap the information. But rather, it sounds like what they're alluding to is that they've set up a peer-to-peer encrypted call over the internet that is actually creating a secure channel between you and I as individuals and that the call is actually taking place over that. So that would be similar to, I'm sorry for using the same and same analogy, but that would be similar to the calls over WhatsApp, right? Because the WhatsApp calls are by default encrypted end-to-end. You actually can't opt out of it, even if you wanted to. Yeah, for WhatsApp, actually everything is encrypted end-to-end. It isn't an opt-in where you have to specifically choose to make this particular chat secret or this particular chat encrypted. Rather, everything on the platform is encrypted end-to-end, right? From messaging and file files that you share. The metadata is obviously probably available. They're likely having to route some of that information. So that may not be protected in the same way, but the actual contents of your messages, the files themselves that you share on there, the images, they are being encrypted end to end. You don't have to opt in. It's on by default. A lot of companies have started to release end-to-end encryption features for their messengers, but where you have companies that definitely have relied on data mining or access to your information in the past, a lot of them have opted to make that an opt-in feature, so you as a user have to remember to do that each time. Oftentimes, they make it so it's difficult to opt-in after the fact. 
and or they'll make it difficult to use for groups of people. It'll be a one-on-one thing or specifically only from one device that you have to one device the other person has, making it a not as usable capability from a day-to-day perspective. Let's go through um, the most popular apps. So Signal, is that end-to-end encrypted? Very much so. And as a consumer, Signal is probably the benchmark. It's encrypted by default. It's end-to-end encrypted by default at all times. You know, for consumer privacy and security, that is probably the benchmark by which other applications are measured today. Snapchat. Snapchat, not end-to-end encrypted. All right. What about Telegram? Telegram is an interesting case. It, you know, at least in the past, and one would have to go back and validate this again because things are constantly changing. It's tech. At least in the past, generally, communications that took place over Telegram weren't encrypted end-to-end by default. It was only when you opted in to something very much akin to Facebook's secret conversations, right? When you opted in, it set up a secret or direct channel between you and one other party on one of your devices and one of their devices. If you needed to continue that conversation, you actually had to end that secret chat effectively start up another one that was off the record and then continue from there. You would lose any of that history. You wouldn't be able to continue the conversation with context per se. You see a lot of companies, even on the enterprise side of the house, now starting to do a similar kind of thing. Their their general communications are not end-to-end encrypted. And they'll tell you the reason is because they have to provide functionality like search or archives and retention or other controls that enterprises need. And so because they haven't been able to solve for how to provide that in an end-to-end encrypted environment, generally one-on-one and group conversations won't be end-to-end encrypted. And then they'll give you this side DM type of off-the-record, you know, third type of chat somewhere else tucked away into the application where if you can manage to find it, figure out how to use it, you can have some of those limited one-to-one end-to-end encrypted communications that exist between one device and another and nothing else. Before we go to the Facebook and the subpoena and the wiretap, for all of our younger users, even though if you're not, you don't consider yourself younger and you still use Snapchat, there is nothing wrong with that. What happens? Because there's a big misconception about Snapchat. People think that the photo you send or the video you send disappears and it's not stored anywhere and it just kind of goes out in the universe and that's it. Is is that correct? So I can't comment on Snapchat's data retention policies internally. What we can say, though, is is that information is not end-to-end encrypted between you and the other person, and that burn-on-read type functionality, that disappearing Mission Impossible-style message for folks who are a little bit older and who don't use Snapchat. You'll remember in Mission Impossible, you've got this message, it'll self-destruct in the next 30 seconds. That's pretty similar to what Snapchat has rolled out for folks. That information definitely traverses the network in such a way where as Snapchat would be able to see the content of whatever you're sharing on their servers. Now, whether they choose to retain that or it truly is ephemeral and they're removing it from their servers after some defined period of time, we'd have to actually ask Snapchat to better comment on that. Well, I'm going to because I think it's something everyone wants to know. So we've discussed end-to-end encryption, we discussed just general encryption, and the other buzzword that a lot of people use now when they talk about all of this um, policy matters is backdoors the backdoor into this secret room where there's only two people having a conversation. Should there be backdoors as um, the government claim in the San Bernardino case versus Apple? Or is if if creating a backdoor would open a Pandora box where, that will 
take value out of encryption and just make the world way more vulnerable to hacks, to requests from governments that may not have very democratic institutions and so on and so on. So the reality is, is security is really hard, right? It is really, really hard to get right. And most people forget that. They assume that technology companies are so good at building these products that they provide that everyone loves to use, that have all these rich and amazing capabilities, that simply figuring out a way to secure whatever that backdoor entrance might be for law enforcement and others into those conversations could just be a run-of-the-mill part of their everyday business. Not that big of a deal. You already do all these other amazing things, just do this as well. The challenge is, is even for corporations that have a significant financial interest on the line to help protect things like that, we've seen time and time again that it is a really challenging thing. If you think about that back door, once someone knows that you have a back door that could get into all the communications or all of a certain type of device that everyday consumers use, there's going to be a lot of ROI attached to figuring out how to get into that back door just like law enforcement can. And so there'll be a lot of resources thrown at that problem, right? By a lot of folks who have much more nefarious intent than our law enforcement folks do. Our law enforcements are asking to do something because they genuinely believe that this will help them better protect us. You have a whole set of folks over there who would love for us to adopt a backdoor because then they can figure out a way in to use that backdoor for many more malicious things, including identity theft, all sorts of other types of crimes that, you know, that information will allow them to do. And so we've seen an example of something similar with Microsoft. Microsoft used to have this single signing key capability that they used for a lot of the different products. And without going too much into the details here, by accident is what it looks like, a, a copy of that key that they needed that helped protect their operating systems, their devices, and many other of their own applications was leaked. Right? It was put up as part of some sort of you know release version of the code that included a command form, a internal development version that wasn't supposed to make it out into the public release that still had access then to some of this information could you know give you access to that key. Even a company like Microsoft that has so much of its own financial interests on the line failed to appropriately protect that information and make sure there was no way it could possibly get out. You have a lot of technology companies who could invest millions upon millions of dollars into that problem and through one basic mistake, nothing intentional, not even a crime being committed, just a simple developer error, suddenly open up that back door to many other people, right? It's not something that's, it's not something that's easily solved. The, the thought that I have in mind is, is it right to tell companies that, hey, you it's have to It's going to stagger innovation. Like if you put so much liability on the company, we're just going to stop even going in that direction, right? Well, there, there are two potential problems, right? So A, you're asking companies to invest a lot of money in solving for this problem, Right. There's an argument to be made that it is okay to ask companies to invest in these kinds of things if it's for the greater good. Interesting argument when it comes to encryption because we know encryption helps protect the greater good overall. And so there's a different greater good argument that law enforcement is making. Because it's so hard to get right though, and because they're gonna have to invest so many resources into it, they're gonna spend a lot of time and energy on that problem. 
there's a good chance that at some point they won't have gotten some part of it right. And when things go wrong, because they've now been mandated or told you had to go build this back door, who should bear the liability for that having now gone wrong? Right. Is that something where the government is going to come in and say, hey, you know what? We were the ones who asked you guys to intentionally weaken your security. And so now that this situation has occurred and something has gone wrong, we're going to go help backstop your financial losses or your reputational damage or the reporting costs that you are now responsible for for all these individuals. And the answer is they're probably not going to do that, right? So it's like saying, hey, we need you to go intentionally weaken your security, make yourself more susceptible to these kinds of problems, things that will cause liabilities for you in the future. And then take fall if it happens. And then also take the fall if it happens. And you're like, well, wait, we already know it's so hard to get right. We don't want to do that. We are trying to limit those kinds of problems, right? But you're now asking us to do exactly that. That's really, really difficult for companies to figure out, well, how do we what do we do? It's a lose-lose situation, it basically, is. if government puts companies into that space. You put and them into that position, and it, you're right, it is a lose-lose situation, potentially. And it looks like more and more, um, case after case, even though some of these are sealed and we just hear of them because of leakers or some other reasons, that government is doing that, making that argument and doing that and trying to make companies responsible and help them figure out this hard, you know, questions of security. And as we've heard in previous podcasts, we had Robin Green from OTI, for example, government sometimes doesn't even look for other avenues and our options of uh, solving a law enforcement problem before they come to this basically nuclear option of putting the whole security infrastructure um, under pressure and danger. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing, right? I mean, I think one of the more interesting parts of the discussion or the debate is actually that even if we decided that we were going to have American companies come do this, there's no way we as America can mandate that other companies who have services they're building in other parts of the world also do the same. We also know that if we put American companies in this position here, that they're going to be asked to do the exact same thing abroad by other countries in which their services operate. And so we potentially put our own companies in a very non-competitive situation, right? It makes it harder for them to go compete on the global stage when people realize, well, there are alternatives. This country and the services that are housed there don't require any such thing. We can go ahead and use those services because we feel more comfortable using them. We know we're going to be better protected there. So now coming back to the discussion you were having with Robin a few podcasts ago, right? Robin made this point about law enforcement immediately seeking out the nuclear option and just saying, look, we just, as a matter of blanket policy, need access to all communications at all times. There's a cost perspective that should be considered when weighing how best to solve this problem. On the one hand, you could turn to American companies and say, we need you to invest millions of dollars in engineering effort to both build these backdoors and then also secure them. Or we could address each individual case and device as it comes up and then get into that one device at a time without having to weaken security for everyone. When we think about that cost perspective, right? The average engineer making maybe 100K and it taking many teams of engineers to build out solutions that might be around a backdoor plus all the other kinds of investments are going to have to go into securing something, we can easily estimate that that cost for most companies would be in the millions, if not tens of millions of dollars or more on an annual basis to go deal with. When we look at the backlog of devices that the FBI said they were unable to access, taking their original number, there were something like 8,000 devices, 7,000 something was the exact number. 
We know that there are companies out there offering solutions that allow you to unlock an unlimited device, a number of devices, at least for the current set of devices and operating systems that are out there, that will run you somewhere in the order of magnitude of about $30,000. Right? So for between $30,000 to $40,000, you could easily unlock those 8,000 devices. Even though there's not 8,000, it's like 2,000. Right. So coming to that part, right? So if we take the first set of numbers that the FBI released and we say, okay, even on the upper bound, it's $40,000 to uh, get into each one of these devices and we divide 8,000 into that, we figure out that it's maybe five bucks to get into each one of those devices if they have that many. Fine. Even if you bring the number down to what we now know is the real number, it's something less than 2,000 devices, Right. Great. So you 4x the cost. Maybe it's $20 a device. 20? Well, we. Wait, was, I'm really bad at math. That's why I'm a lawyer. Yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah about, about that. that. Rough, really. so I if, can't if it was $40,000 to get into them before. Yes. And now we say there's only 2,000 devices. That's about $20 a device. The reality is the exact math works out to something like roughly 30 bucks a device when you consider the exact number that they currently have on a backlog versus what they've already gone into and the exact cost of these devices. You're somewhere in that neighborhood of you know about $30 a device. That doesn't seem like a really high bar to meet if you really want access to that data. If it's so important for law enforcement to do their job and to get that information, if the cost is really coming down to about 30 bucks, Right? And the more devices they want to get into, all the enough that cost continues to fall, that doesn't seem like it should be that high of a threshold to meet. Great. 30 bucks contributed. Done. We move on. It seems really odd then to say, American companies, we need you guys to spend millions each when we could just solve the problem on our end for about 30 bucks an incident. Right? Even if you said that you needed to have redundant capabilities, two or three or four of these. So maybe you have four different things per device, and so now the cost goes up even by 4x. You're at 120 bucks. If you're at 120 bucks and you're saying that the data isn't worth you having to spend 120 bucks, then why is it worth having American companies spend millions of dollars each to and go engineer those everyone, capabilities? First of all, the consumers into a very vulnerable position. That's right. So you're asking these companies to spend a lot of money on a capability they don't necessarily need. You're asking them to spend a lot more on ongoing maintenance and investments around securing that, you know, backdoor capability. And then you're also saying, hey, we're going to potentially weaken the entire American public security at the same time. Because we didn't want to spend 120 bucks well, on this one. Well, that doesn't make any sense, It does doesn't it? make as much sense, right? So there's a cost argument to consider there. I'm not downplaying what law enforcement is saying. I'm sure there are some instances that they will be able to bring forward that they would say, hey, look, access to this information would have better helped us. I'm not here to debate that part. But there is an interesting cost narrative to consider, you know? You came... To this information after the fact, you realize you need access to the information on this device. If what it's going to cost you is somewhere from 30 to 120 bucks, even if it was double that, that seems like it should be worth it versus the cost of having these companies preemptively build all this infrastructure and technology and security that then weakens everyone else's security along the way. Well, as a civil liberties lawyer, you're preaching to the choir because I think what people also should consider is how huge is our right of privacy and our Fourth Amendment rights in general and the protections that it grants us, how much it means. Um, we're going to have a lot of these topics play out in the next year or so. And in, as new technology and innovation happens, it's going to be new questions and new angles of uh, old problems. So we hope to have you back to answer some deep questions and some um 
millennial questions about Snapchat, hopefully, um, in the future. Thank you so much for joining our show. Thank you for having me, Ash. So you can follow Tech Freedom on Facebook, Twitter, and any other major social media platform at Tech Freedom. Please leave us a review so others can find the show easily. Thank you for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.